Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. We are very happy to welcome today Dr. Orr Rabinowitz. Dr. Rabinowitz is a tenure-track lecturer in the Department of International Relations at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Her work focuses generally on nuclear history and specifically on nuclear proliferation and Israeli-American relations. In 2014, she published her book, Bargaining on Nuclear Tests, Washington and its Cold War Deals, through the Oxford Unity Press, University Press. Ori, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're, we're excited to talk today. There's a lot of uh, kind of relevant news uh, coming out um, related to your article, and we wanted to sort of get a chance to, to bring the, ha- the past into the present. So uh, with the MPT review conference expected to finally take place this year and with the SALT II negotiations again on the news, uh, we wanted to talk to you about uh, Israeli nuclear history. Uh, Israel, notably uh, not a signee of the MPT, um, but uh, still always relevant to, to kind of the nuclear discussion. Uh, in your article, When Pigs Fly, uh, Britain, Canada, and Nuclear Exports to Israel, 1958 to 1974, in uh, Diplomacy and Statecraft, uh, you kind of explore uh, this period where Israel is trying to negotiate for a, a nuclear reactor from the UK and uh, Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about the context for this article and what was going on? So uh, the, this specific article is a part of a larger project I just uh, wrapped up. Uh, I think it took me about three or four years, something like that. Uh, it had roughly four articles in it, so this is one of them. And what I was trying to do is figure out why does Israel, my country, have no nuclear power plants? Uh, it did make sense because up until 99, when we first discovered offshore gas depositories, Israel had uh, no um, energy sources of its own, and it was exporting uh, all its energy needs from outside, and due to the geostrategic, uh, um, let's say, uh, conditions of the Cold War, Israel was essentially an island. It couldn't uh, export uh, its needs through its uh, neighbors. It uh, had several wars going on with its neighbors. And uh, we all know uh, the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict, but it's peculiar because um, Israel built two nuclear reactors in the late 1950s. It bought one reactor from the United States. It bought a second reactor uh, from uh, France, and uh, these reactors were in operation in the mid-1960s, so Israel had this establishment going on, it had the nuclear infrastructure, it had people trained in nuclear physics, two reactors were operating, so why 
are we in a situation where there are exactly zero nuclear power plants? And I thought it was quite odd. And I know Israeli nuclear history pretty well, but I, I didn't have the answer to that. Hmm. So I decided uh, to um, sniff around and dig around. And uh, I have to say it's been fascinating. And the article we're going to discuss is one article. And there's another article that uh, focuses on the 1970s. Actually, it starts in the late 1960s. It starts uh, with Johnson. And it looks into uh, the Nixon era and Ford and Carter. And, Basically, the article we're going to discuss is kind of the mirror image. So it explores what was happening with Canada and the UK as Israel was talking uh, to the United States. And I also have an article which uh, comparatively uh, examines together with uh, my lovely co-author, uh, Dr. Jaita Sarkar from Boston University. We compared the failure of America to export nuclear power uh, reactors to Israel and Egypt in the late 1970s. Uh, with the failure of France uh, to export uh, nuclear technology uh, to Pakistan and South Korea. So a lot of, uh, let's say, moving parts in this project. They're all super interesting. The last, uh, let's say, the last interesting puzzle piece is an article uh, which uh, has not been accepted yet, but I think it's great because, uh, and I'm, I would love for it to be accepted soon. Yeah. Basically this is this that, is a good yeah. advertisement for it right here. Uh, <laughs> you can send <laughs> yeah, yeah. this along. If you, read, if you read it, you have to accept it. Otherwise right. you find uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, 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 the head of a dead horse in your bed tomorrow. Uh, but basically it shows that uh, uh, Israel, the, the Jewish leadership of uh, the issue of the embryonic uh, uh, Jewish body in uh, uh, British-controlled Palestine, which existed before the state was established. In 1947, they were already trying to establish a nuclear reactor before the state was established, which I think is crazy. So this is where we are. So we have uh, we have this project. I never knew it would uh, go this far. I was hoping it would go far. It went far, so it was exciting. It was an exciting uh, trip to the archives, let's say, and many interesting documents. And there we are. Yeah, and it's pretty fascinating. It's kind of it's very interesting looking into kind of the nature of a failed negotiation, right? Um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of center around uh, the nuclear weapons that were developed and the nuclear reactors that were developed, but um, taking a look at why uh, some negotiations fail, I think it's really interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the actual period between 1958 and 1974? Why focusing on those? Um, dates and what the negotiations were actually like at the time. So uh, the late 1950s, 1958 is when Israel officially started to, to talk about um, the fact that it wanted to establish um, uh, civilian nuclear uh, power plants and it wanted to produce electricity using uh, this new technology. So in 1958, we're roughly, let's say, 10 years into uh, the era of uh, the promise of nuclear reactors for civilian purposes. Uh, 1974 is a kind of an arbitrary cutoff uh, date. Uh, the documents I found kind of the, na the natural story they told kind of ended hmm. uh, in the mid 1970s as the Yom Kippur War and its ramification, the 1973 October War uh, had just concluded and uh, uh, the, the geostrategic landscape of the Middle East was uh, uh, reorganizing itself. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the, the documents basically told me I had to stop there. If I had more and better documents going into the late 1970s, I would have changed the article. But this is kind of where the story ends with Canada and the UK. That makes sense. Um, in fact, actually going into Canada and the UK is, is um, 
pretty interesting. So I, I think um, when looking at why Israel might want a civilian nuclear reactor, I think it's sort of self-explanatory. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to, to be gained from it. But uh, in your article, you go into a little bit about the motivations um, and the thought process for the sellers of, of these nuclear reactors and, and nuclear technology. Um, can you tell me generally what what the the uh, kind of motivation is for a country to sell this this highly controversial and powerful technology um, and then specifically the UK and Canada what they were thinking as they, they were uh, handling these negotiations so first of all uh, a little explanatory note on the UK and Canada uh, both participated in the Manhattan project so ostensibly you can argue that both should have been nuclear weapon states but we know that the uh, first part of the Cold War, tells us a different story. So Britain goes on to become a, weapon state, a nuclear weapon state that's basically highly um, dependent on the US. Mm-hmm. And Canada just decides not to go into uh, the area of nuclear weapons, but it becomes a major a nuclear reactor exporter. It's a major player uh, in the market. Whereas uh, Britain actually fails to become a major exporter. So Britain remains uh, dominant uh, in the sense of having uh, uh, developed nuclear weapons, but doesn't really become as important as Canada or France uh, in the nuclear mm-hmm. exports. Uh, but these two countries are interesting because um, uh, they, they tell the, the story of the failed uh, deals, as you mentioned. So we already said that France had sold Israel the Dimona reactor and the US had sold Israel another small reactor called the Surek reactor. So these two countries, we understand they're nuclear exporters, they had nuclear deals with Israel and these nuclear deals actually materialized. But ha- what, what exactly happened with the other two? And we have to remember that the UK and Canada are relatively close allies of Israel, not super close. Israel is uh, uh, more often than not a pariah state. It doesn't have extremely close relations with these two countries all the time. The relationship, uh, it ebbs and flows, but still Israel is uh, firmly uh, committed. But in, in the time period we're talking about, Israel is a part of the Western Hemisphere and the Western-led alliances. So, what happened with these two actors? Um, and apparently they never got, uh, let's say, uh, the, 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 the wires were always crossed in both establishments, both in Canada and the UK. Sometimes you have actors that really want to sell. Maybe they're looking at making a profit. Maybe they think it's just a good idea to promote nuclear energy and the spread of nuclear energy. Maybe they think it's good uh, for, let's say, and it's an example I used from the article, for the UK to sell a reactor, which is gonna be one of the first of its kind, and uh, uh, the Israeli case could be a demonstrator. And I'm gonna uh, add a little parenthesis here. We're recording this in uh, late January, uh, 2021. And as we speak, Israel is a technological demonstrator uh, of the COVID vaccination. Hmm. So this isn't a far-fetched thing. Sometimes Israel becomes a technology demonstrator for different technologies. Uh, we can talk uh, maybe uh, down the road about uh, the Arrow anti-ballistic uh, missile system as a demonstrator. So now we're going to uh, get back to our own story <laughs> of Israel and its failed bids uh, to buy nuclear reactors. So some people in the UK think it's a great idea to sell one of the new reactors to Israel and and market it as a demonstrator. But these ideas never take off. Someone in both administrations and both uh, uh, bureaucracies, whether it's in the UK or and whether it's in Canada, the bureaucracies block it. They think it's a bad idea. They think it would basically tick off the Arab world. They think that they would likely face 
a hostile reaction from the Arab world and generally they cut off uh, these initiatives. It's interesting because it kind of mirrors uh, a similar perception we sometimes see with uh, different US bureaucracies where sometimes we have a friendly president which wants to see a closer ties with Israel. You can think of uh, President Johnson as an example, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. the bureaucracy itself thinks it's a bad idea and they try to talk him out of it and they think it would basically cause rupture between uh, the Arab world and the US. But the funny thing is that usually these fears are unfounded because uh, if we look historically, uh, specifically in the American case, but we can also expand the picture. When these overtures happen and a country like the US makes uh, a big overture to Israel during the Cold War, usually the Arab world doesn't overreact. So hmm. you, we see, we see a, a lot of uh, suspicion uh, being played out uh, by the US and I think in this case by in Canada and the UK, and it's not actually on the ground backed up by facts. Uh -huh. Personally, if we play a little game of um, imagined alternative reality. Yeah. I don't think that uh, the Arab world would have reacted harshly to a civilian safeguarded nuclear power plant sold by the UK or Canada. But again, there's no way to corroborate this. Do you, do you think that the, the fears were, were genuine if, if unfounded? Or do you think that this was more of an excuse to, to not make a deal or, or something like that? I see it more as an excuse, uh, simply because Israel had clearly crossed the nuclear threshold in the time mm -hmm. period we're talking about. We now know, and we should give credit to the historian uh, who works a lot on this case, uh, an Israeli-American historian called, uh, called Avner Cohen, together with historian William Burr. We have to give, uh, to give them uh, the credit uh, that they're due. Um, they published quite a lot of, uh, of recent studies showing that Israel had crossed the nuclear threshold in the eve of the 1967 war, the Six Day War. And uh, it's pretty clear to me that Israel didn't need to import nu uh, nuclear imports to work on its nuclear infrastructure and the weapons side of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure that uh, safeguards would have been uh, adequate uh, to basically uh, promise to the potential seller, if it's, whether it's Canada or the UK, that the exported technology wouldn't be misused. Israel simply didn't need to misuse them. It, it was already quite down. The, the horse was out of the... <laughs> exactly. I mean, the horse doesn't need uh, someone to open the gate if uh, he left the stable 10 minutes ago. Right. <laughs> and it's not the same horse uh, who lost his head uh, to the review. Yeah, <laughs> that you were threatening... <laughs> Uh, it all it all comes full circle. I love it. <laughs> uh, I, I have one more uh, quick question, and, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Pete. Uh, just not about Israel, but about Canada. Uh, I find it fascinating that Canada opts not to develop nuclear weapons, but then becomes one of the greatest exporters of nuclear technology. Uh, how does that process happen? What like uh, what is what is Canada's perspective on nuclear technology that? they're drawing the line between their own program and other people's. In a natural, uh, and I should say, I'm not an expert in Canadian nuclear thinking. But we're, we're some, putting you on the record as it. an expert. Exactly. I, know that, so. uh, I think that they just uh, realized that given that, you know, under the Cold War framework and the geostrategic situation during the Cold War, they just didn't need uh, nuclear weapons of their own. The US uh, was um, the, the, the dominant power and was uh, the one involved 
in deterring uh, the Soviet Union. And Canada really didn't need to jump on this wagon. Uh, who would it deter? What would be the added advantage, right? Uh, simply put. That being said, it's, I think it's quite ironic that uh, they sold so many uh, power reactors, uh, especially to countries like India and Pakistan, who ended up uh, developing nuclear weapons, uh, partly due to the technology that was exported to them by France and Canada. Um, so sometimes even if you think you don't have nuclear weapons, it's possible that you've grandfathered them elsewhere. Uh, I don't think they wanted India and Pakistan to develop nuclear weapons. I don't think it was a, a Canadian intention, far from it. We have yeah. historical record. They reacted harshly when this happened, um, but uh, they weren't uh, uh, very careful uh, with uh, considering the export of the technology. And we see it with the France, with uh, the French as well. And the French are quite happy to see uh, some countries uh, proliferate, especially in the first uh, half of the Cold War. And uh, Henry Kissinger famously called them, he said, he, um, he, he has a famous quote where he says, well, we all know that the French are the leakiest. So they leak technology. And even when they try to attach safeguards, we all know that these safeguards are leaky. They don't hold ah. water or heavy water fuel. Um, and it was the case with Israel. It was the case with the, uh, Pakistan. Uh, so they probably earned uh, the, the stereotype, the reputation, the, the, or the bad reputation, exactly. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe uh, our next interview we can discuss uh, France's role in, in all of this as well, and, and go back to Sykes Picot and everything, and, and <laughs> that, that that's a longer episode, that? maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'd actually like to, to shift the conversation a little bit to to something you you teased on uh, in one of your earlier answers, uh, and that's the documents. Uh, obviously, here at the Wilson Center, we we place a very high importance on uh, archives and and our archival material, primary sources. So you can can you just tell us a little bit about uh, you know any document or collection or maybe even an archive that that really stood out or uh, impacted your your research in uh, in a significant way. So generally speaking, I think that the British archive at Kew is the best archive and the most useful archive for, first of all, researchers like me who uh, are fluent in English, but not in other languages. And second of all, it's very accessible. Uh, you show up, you order the documents, uh, they quite quickly materialize. You can order them in advance and the files are very accessible. And because the British basically uh, were involved with everything and anything in the period, you can uh, access these files and see what the Americans told the British about a certain episode that was unfolding during the Cold War. It doesn't have to involve Britain for you as a researcher to show up at Q when you can, when there isn't pandemic going on and look through these files because uh, they were, I think they were treated in many cases like a, like a nice auntie who basically you, you, you come up and you have tea with her and you gossip with her about things that are going on in the Cold War and the auntie would give you advice. I see it happen quite a lot. I, I mean, it, it's the sense that I get. The Americans would um, sit down with their British counterparts to uh, discuss issues more often than not, especially regarding the Middle East, especially regarding Israel. So even if you think Britain isn't a key player in an episode you're researching, it's still worth your while to show up at Q and dig up some files and uh, you know read the gossip, basically. <laughs> if not a key player, a key confidant at the least. Exactly, exactly. 
And uh, and absolutely, you're, you're right about the the ease of access and accessibility. That kind of uh, dovetails into our next question here, which is uh, looking at at Israel and its sort of reluctance and refusal to share information on its uh, nuclear program during this period. Do the do the archives in Israel today reflect the same level of secrecy? And as a researcher, as a uh, as a historian, uh, how are you able to sort of triangulate any any gaps in that in that record with, say, British records or or uh, American archives or Canadian uh, sources? So uh, I think it's a great question because I kind of take it for granted, uh, living in Israel, being Israeli, that people know the situation, and I think it's very good that you asked. So let's explain the situation. There aren't uh, any accessible Israeli files on Israel's uh, nuclear uh, weapons program. There have never been, and there won't be in the foreseeable future, as long as we live at least. And uh, you can't work with these files, they don't exist, and you can't uh, properly interview people. Um, full stop. So that's for, is that's for uh, archival documents, uh, which refer to Israel's nuclear weapons program. And before our uh, national archive closed down, uh, you could access other files, which I did, and it was very interesting. And so you can read uh, files that relate to US-Israel discussions. The, uh, I'll tell you in a bit about a very fascinating document I found detailing Nixon's visit to Israel in 1974. And so you can, you, a few years, up until a few years ago, you could have accessed these files. Then a couple of years ago, the National Archive decided to close its reading room. I think it's a travesty, it's a tragedy. Uh, I'm still not over that. And now we're supposed to email them, uh, ask for uh, scanned uh, digital, digitized files and wait. So, uh, usually the files don't show up and when they show up, it's uh, sometimes, I mean, I'm still waiting for files I ordered in 2018. It's not reliable, it's not working, and no one can seriously work uh, with a system like that. So essentially, I would say that it's impossible at the current state to work on uh, Israel's, uh, let's say, current or Cold War history. I mean, you can't just wait, sit around for years waiting for someone in an archive to digitalize a file and send it to you. Mm. So I can only work with the files that uh, I copied and uh, found myself, I think it was up until 2017, something like that. As far as I'm concerned, the Israeli archives uh, are off, off limits and they're not a part of the picture. Uh, what I do is I work with archives around the world. Again, I only speak English. Uh, by the way, uh, the archives in New Delhi are in English. And so I hired a research assistant there and. Uh, she uh, sent me some uh, very interesting files from the Indian Foreign Ministry. And you can go to South Africa. The South Africans have also closed down their archives and it's now only digitized, unfortunately. And, it's, uh, and you have the same problem, uh, as I mentioned in the Israeli case, but still you can try. But I think you have to go there and to email uh, locally and to pay locally, or you, you can pay some local research assistant. Uh, and there's the UK and the Canada and the US. These are the uh, relevant countries in the Israeli case. There's uh, also the uh, French archives. Some historians have worked with those archives. Um, they're notoriously uh, not friendly to historians, but again, people have worked. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Gadi Hyman, uh, worked uh, with the French materials and a lot of other researchers do that. Um, I think it's a tragedy. I think that when countries close uh, their archives, they're undermining their own democratic system. You have to allow research and people need to be able to uh, trace the historical processes and the decision-making processes. 
in the recent past, and we're talking about the 80s and the 90s, we'll soon be talking about the 90s and we're not getting any access, any proper access in the 70s. Uh, so that's, that's uh, that. And um, so again, so uh, Israel has never officially uh, talked about its uh, uh, nuclear uh, weapons program. Uh, so you can't interview people and you have no documents to work with. Uh, you have uh, secondary literature. You have the books by Avner Cohen and other researchers. Interviews on the digital archive in the uh, Avner Cohen collection on the Wilson Center website. Very important interviews. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding. They're very important. You have yeah. to start. Uh, you have to. Th that's the starting point for anyone interested uh, in Israel's nuclear history. And then, you know, you're on, you're on your own. Uh, you can definitely go to American uh, archives. I think they're very good. And uh, it's what I did. Uh, and I have, uh, I found very interesting uh, documents from the Carter archive and the Nixon archive. And uh, there's a file in the Ford archive. And there's a lot you can do. And this is what I did for the project I, I just described. And uh, uh, maybe one day it will uh, turn into a book. We'll see. Um, but we have to have uh, archival access. Otherwise, it's not, uh, it's not serious to do it without. So going back to Peter, to your original questions, what do you do? Uh, so I try to triangulate all the information I have from the different archives. I try to uh, look at um, uh, interviews in the media. I use a lot of media archives because sometimes uh, uh, the interviews given at the time would be even more telling than the documents you see. If, uh, if, uh, if Kissinger comes to a visit and sits down with the journalist and then he sits down with Rabin, you may get a lot of what he just is going to tell Rabin in the interview he just gave to a journalist, just as an example. Um, if you're talking about Israel's civilian nuclear program, then you can definitely try to interview people. It's not, uh, the civilian program should not be secret and you can get files relating to that. Um, but again, you have to, you have to realize that the, you're gonna deal with a lot of uh, unknown unknowns in terms of uh, anything that had to do with the nuclear weapons program. That being said, it's important to understand that Israel doesn't deny the fact that it has weapons. Officially, it doesn't uh, remark on that. So Israel's famous uh, policy of uh, nuclear uh, ambiguity is that Israel will not be the first to introduce nuclear weapons to the region. And that's it. It doesn't, uh, there, there's no uh, extension to that sentence. So it's not as if official Israelis would tell you, oh, but we don't have nuclear weapons. They won't say that. And they will just not remark on it. And you can Google and you can see there are, there's an interview with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on CNN a few years ago where he elaborates this uh, sentence I just told you. And there's a famous gaffe, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert uh, uh, basically executed on the, in an interview with German television. He basically uh, listed Israel as a country of nuclear weapons state. And <laughs> he said that he was misunderstood. Uh, I mean, I think the whole issue of, uh, uh, of gaffes related to Israel's nuclear weapons program is hilarious and deserves a, a show to itself because yeah. uh, it, there's it's, a long list of quotes going back to the late 60s. It's, it's very reminis reminiscent. I don't know how much uh, you follow American sports, but there's a former football player named Marshawn Lynch who hated interviews famously and would just show up and, and uh, to every question say, I'm just here so I don't get fined. I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> that might be, a, might be a lesson there for, for a certain uh, yeah. Israeli uh, political <laughs> figures to, are, to just yeah. maintain that. Uh, but that, was yeah. he fined by the international community? He was not, was he? No. <laughs> <laughs> So you got to keep the payment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, I, I and you're talking about um, the issue of kind of archival access is, is obviously one of the key themes for us here. And uh, Rosie Bashir wrote a great book, um, Archive Wars, about Saudis archives and, and the kind of uh, importance of archives, not just to, um, you know, researchers like us, but to the, the whole community and the whole society of, of any any country. So uh, it's important to, to just kind of chip around and, as we say, triangulate and try to get the story as much as possible and work around what... Um, these uh, frankly, frustrating issues. It is frustrating. And what, what we do as historians, we say there are some things we don't know. There are a few possibilities. Maybe this is the likeliest one, but we just don't know. And please, future researchers, shed light into this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we let you go, I want to also uh, ask you to do something that no historian uh, uh, wants to do and, and talk about the future <laughs> um, and, and see... Um, I think one of the, the, the fascinating takeaways of, of your article and your work on this project is sort of understanding the, the nature of these negotiations and, and how they actually unfold and what makes for a successful negotiation and what makes for an unsuccessful one. Um, can you extrapolate a little bit um, based on this one kind of case study, uh, what, you know, future negotiators uh can, can take away and how they can use these lessons of the past in their future negotiations. I know Biden is, is going to be coming in and, and focusing on renegotiating JCPOA. And as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, SALT II with, with Russia is sort of uh, uh, back on the news and, and trying to work out um, a way to, to come to some accord on, on that front. Uh, what, what does this case study tell us moving forward about how uh, we can make a deal happen or uh, how we can avoid uh, destroying a deal at the same time. Uh, so let's just contextualize the, the deal at the heart, the failed deals at the heart of this article talk about exporting civilian uh, nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. And the Jakpoa, the Iran deal, talks about limiting an existing uh, civilian uh, infrastructure and making sure that uh, the technology doesn't leak into a military uh, weapons program. So not the, the paths are not identical, but there are still lessons to be learned. I think that if you read the documents that I've read in the project, in the article, but in the project at large, you see that multilateralism is quite crucial if uh, the different uh, states are playing each other and if they're concerned that if they're not going to be the exporter, then the French will be the exporter, or the Canadian, or the British, or the Brits. Uh, if they suspect each other, then they, uh, they undermine each other and, and they tend to uh, look for a, a common denominator where if they uh, adopt a multilateral approach and if they work uh, in, uh, under a combined policy, they're likely to uh, achieve better goals is basically how I see it. Uh, but you have to um, not allow your, uh, idea, let's say, individual uh, policy option and the fact that you want to sell that reactor and you want to see that money going back to your economy, you have to kind of be able to be blind to that and to see, to look into uh, the bigger picture. And hmm. uh, we often see that not happening. But I have to say that's not the Iran, the Iran deal. The Jacobois would still benefit from a multilateral approach, but it doesn't have to do uh, with investment in the same uh, mm-hmm. context as mm-hmm. we're talking about. Great. And just uh, and it, and just to kind of tail the, uh, dovetail, sorry, on that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it, it kind of uh, I read the, I reread the article before we talked because we talked because I actually wrote it a few years ago and it wasn't fresh in my mind. And I came across this document cited in the article 
Uh, it's from 1969. It's written by um, a British uh, bureaucrat from the Defense Ministry, if I remember correctly. And uh, the report basically says, and it, the report riffs on uh, Israel's nuclear program, and it says, well, you know, the only thing that could stop Israel from actually becoming a nuclear weapon uh, state, if it hasn't done so, is a very strong uh, American guarantee to its security. Other than that, really, there's nothing we can offer that would be <laughs> worthwhile. A country isn't going to uh, bargain its uh, future and uh, something that it sees as guaranteeing uh, its, its own security, security yeah. for anything short of a very, very strong uh, guarantee. So what are we talking about? Mm. Basically, the guy in the document says. And so I think it's very interesting. I mean, you have to understand what the, uh, the interests at the core of the program are. And you have to understand how to address the real issues. And if you're not willing to address the real concerns and the real issues, then obviously the country would not be able to barter with you. So a little bit of empathy is what you're saying. Ori, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was great to, to catch up a little bit and, and to talk about a really interesting and, and pretty important subject. Um, so thanks thanks a lot for, for coming on, and uh, we look forward to, to talking again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kian. Thank you, Peter, for having me. It was a great time. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.